This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. If you've been watching any of the Olympics over the past number of days, and I'm sure you probably have, I haven't talked to anyone yet who hasn't done some Olympic watching since it started last Friday, you have probably seen and probably more than once seen scenes of the North Korean cheer team. You know what I'm talking about. Or you've seen images of Kim Jong-un's sister, who is there spending a lot of time hobnobbing with the South Korean delegation and creating some kind of peace and friendliness. I'm not exactly sure, but there as a diplomat of sorts. Or you've heard about how everyone on the Korean peninsula is getting along. And it is on its face. It's a very nice thing to see. Of course, it's better than the alternative, I think. But this is all, and we know this, I'm not offering anything here that is new or that is unique. This is all part of a North Korean, what they're calling it a charm offensive to show the world that really they are maybe a little more misunderstood than what we know, or, or maybe that things aren't quite like you expect based on the news reports that we've heard over the years. Now, I'm not sure everybody's buying it. I'm pretty sure we shouldn't be buying it. I'm pretty sure that we should be very skeptical and not gullible enough to be sucked in by this because the stories that we do hear of what happens in North Korea, I'm not sure that a cheerleading team is going to overcome. Well, Jack Kim is a founder and now special advisor to Hanvoice, Canada's leading organization focusing on North Korean human rights and refugee issues. He joins me now. Jack, thanks for doing this tonight. Yeah, no problem at all. Thanks for having me. Are you being swayed? Are you being pulled in by the happiness of the North Korean cheerleaders into believing that everything is better than we've known all along and that really North Korea is not quite that bad a place? Uh, yeah, I think that's, uh, it, it's, it, it's a bit <laughs> off the beaten track if you, if you, if you are swayed by that, uh, which a lot of people actually don't know uh, about like, the actual things that do happen in North Korea. When, when you look at the, the way that the media was swayed uh, you know, crowning this as a, a gold medal for Kim Jong-un. The, uh, the things that happen in North Korea are terrible. There are political concentration camps. And as you said, no amount of propaganda can really wipe that out. I mean, even the UN in 2014 has acknowledged that North Korea is one of the worst human rights offenders on the planet. So, yeah, the, the cheerleaders are, are more, more or less window dressing. I want to get to those issues that you just discussed in just a second, but clearly... What they are doing in their role here, I don't think that really Kim Jong-un really cares whether his women's hockey team is feeling uplifted when they play. This is truly to put out a bright light or a, a f- fresh face for the world, correct? This is exactly what this is. Yeah, and, and I mean, to be frank, it seems that these cheerleaders are much more coordinated than the women's hockey team scores <laughs> are, are any indicator. Um, I, I don't think there was any expectation that uh, the women's hockey team, either on the South or North Korean side, would, would do any, any good at the Olympics. That's probably why they chose uh, a sport that they knew was, they were going to tank in to to uh, go with this unified effort. But, uh, yeah, Kim Jong-un definitely is, is much more interested in in the face that that uh, the cheerleaders show rather than, than the, the hockey team itself. Uh, they, I don't think they're even televising these games in North Korea. But are you surprised that clearly it appears anyway that some people watching and some of the media who are there are buying into this? There is a... This is not being presented as a lunacy-driven thing. This is being presented in some cases as, hey, look how well this is going. 
Yeah, I, and and I think it's uh, partly it's because the the uh, it's there's a lot that's going on right now, and and when when you're looking at some of the alternatives that we've been talking about, uh, example nuclear war, that uh, these things become a bit of an outlet, a valve for people to talk about and say, hey, there's an alternative to nuking North Korea or nu- North Korea nuking us, and so. Uh, because the the alternatives are just so stark, things like this I think come and and kind of boil to the surface. But it, it doesn't really betray the fact that uh, we're talking about a very terrible country, and they're doing these things on purpose to to do exactly what what you described. Does it does this suggest? And I don't want to overstate this, but does this suggest if it's working if in some quarters, if this is gaining some traction some places? Does this suggest that, if nothing else, Kim Jong-un isn't as dumb as he's been portrayed to be, that he's actually done something that's working for him here? I, I, I actually disagree with that fundamental premise that Kim Jong-un is, is stupid or misled or too young to govern. He's been doing pretty fine in his own country. He's ruthless. He's kill, he killed his uncle, who was his chief rival, to, to the throne. He killed his brother in one of the busiest airports in Asia with, uh, with chemical weapons. So when it comes to knocking people off and governing his country, uh, a lot of people thought Kim Jong-un wasn't going to survive a year in North Korea. He's right now in, in year like seven right now. So uh, he is not stupid. We can't underestimate him. He's developed a, a nuclear program and a missile program that can now probably reach the United States. So underestimating his intelligence is probably the worst thing that we can do. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. Continuing our conversation with Jack Kim, founder and special advisor to Hand Voice, which is a Canada's leading organization focusing on North Korean human rights and refugee issues, talking about the Olympics and the North Korean charm offensive that is being done to try and apparently show normalcy and that North Korea is really not what we think it is. And Jack, you work with North Korean people. You spend a lot of time dealing with them. What do they make of this? When they see this, what are they thinking is going on? Well, I, I, they, they see right through it because uh, they've grew, grown up with this type of propaganda. North Korea used to have these things called mass games where you know tens of thousands of people would go into these gyms and uh, perform for uh, the Kims, the Kim Jong-uns of, the, of North Korea, and they would all be in unison. In, in in doing these like these really picturesque but grueling uh, moves on the dance floor, and basically that these are the cheer, these cheerleaders are basically doing the same thing on a very smaller scale. So they're used to seeing this. It's a way to control the people and to make them do all the same thing, literally, which is what the North Korean government wants. So they see this. Uh, they they usually are proud of the North Korean athletes themselves, but they are careful to separate the athletes from the regime. And when, and again, it, it's the regime really that we're talking about here. We can't go into all the stories, but off the top, you were touching on the fact of what happens there often. Uh, when you talk to these people, when you hear from them over the years, their stories when they come here, mm-hmm. what do you hear about their lives back home before they were able to get out? Well, it, it's total control. And North Korea has been likened to be a prison camp in itself as a country because you can't leave the country without permission. Uh, but uh, the worst offenders, and, and from the North Korean regime's perspective, are folks who speak out against the regime, are dissidents, are defectors. 
And they and their immediate families are usually sent to political concentration camps. And these are exactly what you think they are uh, from movies like Schindler's List and, and Soviet gulags. Uh, th- that's the picture that you have to think about. They're not designed to be released back into society, uh, a lifetime of hard labor and, and basically death. That's the worst. And right now there are probably about 80 to maybe 120,000 people still in these camps in North Korea. For what kind of infractions? What would be the lowest thing that would get you stuck in one of you, those? Let's say that there's a picture of Kim Jong-un in one of the newspapers, and you sit on that newspaper... Uh, you're you're dead meat. <laughs> really, yeah, they, they catch you that, and like uh, and basically families are informing on on each other, sons informing on on parents, and parents informing on on children as well. So you you have this really vicious cycle of of things that you can get with the lowest of infractions get you into these camps. I mean the the ultimate extreme end of a cult of personality around Kim. Uh, that's right, and and people still wear those badges on their. On their lapel pins, um, on the on their uh, shirts uh, when they move around, and if you saw Kim Jong Un's sister Kim Yo Jong, she too had these pins on when uh, she was going to official functions, even doing it in South Korea. So we see this cheer team, and they have smiles plastered on their face. I don't know if they're actually enjoying themselves. It's really hard to tell because apparently they're not allowed to speak, and anyone who's tried to interact with them has been ignored. Uh, I'm guessing they're probably not going out on the town at night living it up in Pyeongchang. They're being closely monitored. But what would happen if one of them, to either them or their family, what would happen if one of them tried to make a bolt for it and try and defect? It's never happened, and uh, there's a big reason why, is that the the consequences are dire, especially for the family back home. We'll start there. Uh, Family back home would go into one of these concentration camps, and so would any of the immediate family there. So you're talking about like one generation all going into these places that they, you never see them again. Uh, if the in the athlete defected and and she was caught, uh, I think there the same similar consequences, if not like immediate execution uh, when she got back to North Korea. So uh, there are usually dire consequences that have prohibited anyone really from trying this. And if you've you've, you've never seen a North Korean athlete bolt for it, like we've seen with like Cuban athletes or athletes from other countries as well. And that is a real reason why, because the the families are basically hostages back home. So the fact that some people have taken to this cheer team or to Kim Jong-un's sister or whoever else and kind of looked at this like, hey, this is kind of nice, this is kind of fun. It's an object of um, not ridicule or scorn, but an object of curiosity and maybe a little bit of fun. How long does this last? Is, I mean, d- does this kind of thing last as, as long as the world media has its eyes on the Korean Peninsula and as soon as the Olympics are over and everyone heads home, it's completely life back to normal? Or is there a chance that this actually has some sort of positive impact for peace in that area? Uh, it, it could, and uh, and and this is going back to the alternatives. You you have these Olympics, and then you have a nuclear war. And with the Trump administration increasingly talking about things like giving North Korea a bloody nose and limited military strikes, it, you get the feeling that we're at this precipice. Like, where, where are we going? Are we going down to war? If this does prevent war, a lot of people are willing to swallow all of these North Korean antics to the point that, you know what, maybe we can start talking about getting rid of these weapons or at least having a freeze of, of the hostilities and the, the escalating of tensions. And I think that's why a lot of people are more willing to, to deal with this 
rather than shutting it out. And so it, it, it could lead to something, but really the proof is in, in the pudding after the Paralympics. There are military exercises that are scheduled in March and April. And so if we can get over that, then uh, we, we may be able to get to some kind of peaceful resolution. But who knows where we're going. Jack Kim, founder and special advisor to Hand Voice, Canada's leading organization helping North Korean refugees. Really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. Oh, thanks for having me. It is, uh, look, the, the, whole, the whole war situation around this has been complicated by the fact that North Korea apparently has thousands of weapons pointed at South Korea. So if the Americans were to attack North Korea, South Korea gets obliterated. You can understand then why South Koreans might be willing to at least go along with this a little bit if it means the possibility of peace. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. You hear a lot. I think you do hear a lot. I hear a lot. You hear commercials. You hear people pushing for you to sign your organ donation card. It's an important thing. You want to believe, I want to believe, that if something, heaven forbid, were to happen to me, that at least that could somehow be used for a positive purpose. I don't want something to happen to me, but if it does and my heart could keep someone else alive who needs it or my liver or my eyeballs or whatever, I mean, I don't know what, I would hope that could somehow be a useful thing. Well, there was a law that was passed in the Netherlands yesterday making everyone an organ donor. Everybody. It is now the default position. If you are Dutch and you live there, you are an organ donor unless you specifically decide that you do not want to be this. Whereas here, we say you are by default not an organ donor until you sign up to be one. Now there, you are one unless you sign off not to be one. And this is similar to laws that exist in Spain and Belgium and France. Is it a good idea? James Breckenridge is the president and CEO of the Canadian Transplant Society. Uh, James, thanks for doing this tonight. Oh, you're welcome. Uh, is this then utopia? Is this the best idea anyone's ever had and we should all be thrilled with this? Well, Scott, actually it's not. Um, right now in Canada, as you know, we have a, a program where you have to either register or pledge to be an organ donor depending on what province you're in. And in the case of anybody becoming an organ donor, the final uh, wishes uh, fall on the next of kin. Because don't remember, you have to remember... Uh, a potential organ donor is generally, or 99% of the time, in a coma, on life support, and then it falls on the next of kin. And right now, even if you're a registered organ donor, let's say you're registered in Ontario, and you want to be an organ donor, and your whole family knows you want to be, we're losing 20% right now because the family opts out, uh, and they have that right to do that. That's the final decision maker for your medical uh, uh, decisions. <clears throat> they have the, the final power of attorney. So if you make it an opt-out program, now you're throwing even more doubt into the minds of the next of kin. So you're going to get a higher rate of, of, uh, of uh, next of kin canceling becoming an organ donor. And this is a problem because we have the big issue of being not informed about what organ donation is all about. I must say that I am somewhat surprised to hear the answer, only because I thought that you would probably want to take every organ you could get, and I'm sure you do. Just maybe not this way is what I'm understanding it. Um, <laughs> yeah, and the, the other big issue that, that uh, you know, we have, that, you know, because they tried this in Calgary and they thought about doing it in Winnipeg, is you, you have to have a, a pretty pretty strong structure in place before you can become 
you know, make make it just this blanket statement of becoming an opt-out, and then all of a sudden we've got a 1,000 organs, and we have no doctors, no hospitals, no transplant centers, no transplant nurses, no transplant uh, uh, transportation equipment to even handle all this, uh, these organs. So there's a really a process that should have gone into place before even a country like the Netherlands, who only have eight medical centers in all of the whole country of 16 million people, and there's 1,100 people looking for organs. Now, what happens if tomorrow all of a sudden they have 1,100 organs and uh, and they have no way of using them, so they destroy them all? Are we not so at a place... Gonna upset the government, you're going to upset the population even more. Are we not at a place, though, now where we could have an organ bank? We have blood banks. Can we not do that with organs? No, organs don't last. I, I mean, we're lucky if uh, an organ will last 24 hours. In the case of lungs, for the longest time, Lungs only lasted five hours until Toronto General Hospital developed a system where an or, uh, a lung would last 24 hours. But generally, they like to get the organ in place within 10 hours. So 24 is even a long time, but with this new uh, technology of organ transplant plant equipment, uh, the maximum they really go for is 24 hours. So you can't have like this, an organ donor. You can't with eyes. They, they corneas last uh, uh, forever, <laughs> apparently. But you can't do it with any other uh, organ. You were, mentioning, organ. you were mentioning about families, and ultimately they get to choose. Do you find, do yes. families in Canada, you know, let's say I filled out my organ donor card, which I have. Let's say I filled that yeah. out, and I go to the hospital, and I'm in bad shape. Could my family say, no, we, I know he signed that card, but no, you don't get to take his organs. Can they have that say? Absolutely. That's what happens 20% of the time right now in Canada. Wow. So even if you say to your wife, I want to be an organ donor, and you pass away, she can say, I don't want, to, I don't want you touching him. You leave him alone. And <clears throat> there's, there's, some, there's an understandable reason for that. You know, let's say, you know, Scott, you went to work this afternoon, you kissed your wife goodbye, and the next thing you know, she gets a call from the hospital saying, your husband's in a coma, he's not going to live. What do you want to do? Can we have his organs? It's a pretty traumatic situation to put your wife into. So she might, on you know, from an emotional point of view, at that particular time, just say, leave me alone. I've already got enough grief. I don't need to make any kind of decisions like that. Leave me alone. And that's what happens in 20% of the time. Now, now if you're telling her, we don't even know if he wanted to be an organ donor, we, we just opted into the program, there's a higher risk of her saying no. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. Continuing our conversation with James Breckenridge, President and CEO of the Canadian Transplant Society, about this new law that was just passed in the Netherlands that makes those there automatically organ donors unless they specifically say they don't want to be. It's a flip from what we have here. Uh, James, we were just talking about can a family opt out of this if their loved one had wanted to be a donor, and I'm assuming then the flip could be too, that if, could they ever say if the family, if the person had said, I don't want to do it, could the family override that and say, no, no, go ahead and take those organs? Absolutely. The, 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 thing, the thing is, when you're in a coma, somebody is elected as your, your medical power of attorney, and they have every right to make any decision regarding your body. And if they, if they decide that you're an organ donor, even though you're, you don't want to be, then you're... You're an organ donor. You're kind of at their mercy, for sure. Well, one of the things that I noticed about this new law that uh, as passed in Holland, and by the way, it was, as I understand it, it was a very close vote, 75 to 74 in their parliament. So it was, yeah. it was very... Yeah, it was pretty, pretty close. Yeah. Pretty controversial, obviously, a pretty hard fight. But 
under this law, every Dutch adult who has not yet registered is going to receive two different letters at two different times asking them if they wish to sign out of this. So in other words, the thought process, I guess, is we're going to make sure you at least have a reasonable opportunity to let us know if you don't want to do this. So it's not maybe as forced as it might sound, but... But from your experience with the cards and, and all the commercials and everything else that we know about signing these organ donor cards, and I think most people probably would be in favor of it. We're just so stinking lazy that we don't think to ever get around to it. Even if they're sending letters to your house, are most people going to actually sign those, or is that really not solving the problem? That's not solving the problem. Neither is advertising. Uh, What we found is, first of all, there's most people have two reasons for not registering to be an organ donor, for example, in Ontario. One, informed. They're not informed about what organ donor donation is all about. And number two, they just haven't gotten around to do it. They're too lazy, as you say, too lazy to do it. This is why we have kiosks in various, like the home show, like this weekend at the TTA home show. We have a booth there. We answer all your questions regarding organ donation, and we can register you right on the spot. And uh, we, we have a very much higher percentage than all of Canada regarding registering people because we're right there we can answer your questions and the equipment's right there for you to, to just to say yes yes no goodbye have a nice day and so that that that's a been a big factor for us getting a lot of people to become organ donors but i think the best way we could do it is when you just sign up for your license or your or your uh ohip card in, in ontario for example we use ontario as an example i think you should right now they just say do you want to be an organ donor? You say, no, or yes, or I'm done that, or whatever. They move on, right? Okay, you want the five-year license or the 10-year license, mm. or whatever they ask you. What it should be is there should be a card attached to that that says, you have to make the decision now. You either are an organ donor or you're not an organ donor, period. There's no, we don't know, or, we, or we'll talk about it later. You have to make the decision. You're an adult, make your decision. So if you're not sure, then then put no, and you can always change that later. But if you're sure, then put yes. But at least we have Clarify. everybody on file as saying what they what they made their wishes to be. And I gather that's what they're doing in the Netherlands, except they're doing it with letters. I hope that works because generally, as you know, people are kind of complacent with letters, and they look at that, they might think it's junk mail and throw it mm. out. Well, here's the one issue that does concern me about this idea of this kind of government default position. And I don't know that this is the case in the Netherlands, but this is where I could see something potentially going. And this is where I get very nervous. And that is, you are now, as you describe, you're in a coma, you're in a bad spot, you've had a car accident, something else. Um, If the government then decides we are coming to take your organs, the government or a doctor or somebody there other than the family has decided you're not coming back from this. So it leaves the hands of the family members and becomes some sort of bureaucratic decision that it's time to take your organs. That's where I would become concerned. That's where it now becomes for me a a moral, an ethical, all kinds of decisions that's beyond just about whether or not you want to give your body. And I don't know if that's happening, but that concerns me. That concerns me too, Scott. Fortunately, that's not the situation in Canada. It falls on the next of kin. Now, what happens if you don't have a next of kin? I'm not quite sure. Um, But uh, 
um, if you have an ex of kin, then it falls from the ex of kin in Canada, and that's that's good news for us. It uh, absolutely. Now, listen. I know that uh, you are out for dinner with your wife for Valentine's Day, so I'm not going to keep you any longer. But uh, James Breckenridge, President and CEO of the Canadian Transplant Society, truly appreciate the time today. Thank you for this. My pleasure. Nice talking to you, Scott. That last point is the point about this that does cause me, and I think probably a lot of other people, to be concerned more than squeamish. Squeamish is one thing. Squeamish is like, I don't like seeing blood. This is a, an ethical, a moral concern. Is it if we ever have the situation where because it's a default position, we now have a bureaucracy that decides it's time for you to give up your organs. I mean, it almost sounds like a Monty Python skit, which it was actually in the meaning of life, but in a much more serious way. Imagine if you're lying there and some doctor, whether you have a first opinion, a second opinion, whatever, some doctor says, yeah, I don't think you're coming back. And so they say, well, and that could happen. And so they say, okay, take the liver, take the spleen, take whatever else we can use all those parts. That that's now you're getting into government doing something that I get very, very nervous and very uncomfortable with. This has to be a next of kin, a family member, someone else making this decision for you, or you having filled out the card yourself. But even if you filled out the card yourself, you don't necessarily know when that situation is going to come along. This is, this is, this is way more complicated than I think some of these cases, which is probably why it was such a close vote in the Netherlands. Way more complicated than just, I want to give up my kidney. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. Story that comes from Lisbon, Portugal today. Unbelievably great story, except if you're the guy who is actually involved in the story. For him, not so great, let me assure you. Not so great for him. Why did we play the song, I Like Big Butts and I Cannot Lie? Well, there, there was a guy who was, actually two men, were arrested at Lisbon Airport this week because they were wearing swim trunks on the plane and somehow, it's unclear how it was caught, uh, when police, well, the people at the airport discovered they had fake buttocks under their swim trunks loaded with 2.2 pounds each of cocaine. I mean, this is an ingenious maneuver. If you're a drug mule, you don't want to have to swallow the stuff and then try and pass it because that's dangerous. So yeah, well just, I'm going to wear a bathing suit that has a fake butt inside this thing jammed full of cocaine. And again, not clear how this guy or how these guys were caught. I don't know if they like do a pat down or if some drug sniffing dog, I mean, dogs go around and... (laughs) You know, it's always embarrassing, but dogs always find the parts of you that be sniffing that you don't want them sniffing anyway. I mean, that may not have looked abnormal for a drug-sniffing dog, but anyway. Uh, yeah, they were wearing swim trunks, and they were detained by the anti-narcotics agency of Poland. That was the first guy. The second guy, so here, here's how I got it straight now. The first guy was arrested getting off a plane at the airport. A second guy wearing similar bathing suit with similar fake buttocks filled with cocaine was arrested at a train station doing the same thing. Uh, each buttock had 2,500 individual cocaine packages. That's a, that is one big butt. 
Can you imagine carrying around two and a half pounds of something? In, in, yeah, I don't know how they thought they were going to get through that. There, maybe there's the answer to your question of how they got caught. Forget the drug sniffing dog. Forget the pat down. They must have just had a gigantic booty as they were walking through the airport. Twelve years, by the way, is the sentence in Portugal for drug offenses like this. Uh, you know what this reminds me of? This is and these not illegal. I don't, well, I don't know if they're illegal. They're not illegal to buy these things. I don't know if they allow you, but there are two things, one for a guy, one for a woman that are available. You can buy them online. It's at thebeerbelly.com. And it is very simply a thing you wear under your shirt. It's a, an inflatable bladder that you can fill with a liquid that goes under your shirt that fills into the shape of a beer belly. So if you're going to a football game, let's say, and you want to take three gallons of wine or Jack Daniels or whatever else, you fill up this thing. It just looks like a beer belly. You wear it under your shirt and you, who's going to ever notice? And they have a one for the females, one for the women out there, if you are so inclined, that is a, uh, an inflatable liquid holding brassiere called the wine rack that you fill up. And then there's a straw that comes up your sleeve and you can just, and you, you, you go into the football game as a double D and you come out as something else. I don't know what, but that's, um, and again, who could ever catch it? What security person at a football stadium is going to decide that he has to pat down every man and every woman, especially the women, because you know, you're going to be fired and charged with sexual assault if you do this. So it's a, it's a surefire success story. Not so much filling your buttocks with with cocaine. That one didn't work quite so well. People are if nothing else, and I'm not applauding the maneuver. I'm not I'm not a supporter of the cocaine smuggling and distribution industry. But you have to at least acknowledge that they are being creative. They are really trying hard to be creative and find new ways to transport this stuff. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. Darren Hadar, some of you will know that name. Some of you will know that name very well. He is, he was, he's, he's now a somewhat retired player. He still plays hockey. But when he was playing in the AHL and in the NHL, he was one of the best offensive players ever to play in the high minor leagues. He was the MVP of the AHL at one time. Milton resident. Uh, somebody said to me that he's a guy who should have had an awful lot more games in the NHL than he did, and I would absolutely agree with that. But he is also a guy, he's now back playing, he plays with the Dundas Real McCoys. He is a guy who uh, has had his challenges. There have been things that he has had to deal with, and one of them is something he deals with now. Uh, Darren Hadar joins me now. Darren, how are you tonight? I'm doing very well. Thank you for having me. Uh, listen, I'm, I'm thrilled to have you along because uh, the Dundas Real McCoys, the team you're now playing for tomorrow night, is or uh, Friday night, pardon me, is having a multiple sclerosis night, a fundraiser for MS, uh, which is, I don't know if the phrase near and dear is the right turn of phrase for it, but it's something that is very important for you. Absolutely. It, uh, I was diagnosed with MS in uh, 2011, and it's, uh, I'm an MS fighter. I, I'm battling it every day, and uh, creating awareness, raising awareness is something that I'm all about as I uh, was affected by this disease. There are, I think, an awful lot. I mean, I, everyone's heard of MS. Everyone is familiar with it. But I don't know that everybody actually knows 
what it is or what it does or how it affects people. Can you explain for someone who has it what that means? Well, it's an autoimmune disease, and uh, what happens is it uh, MS is it eats away at your myelin sheath of your spinal cord and uh, causes uh, disabilities as it progresses and something that obviously now that I've been diagnosed that I'm trying to create awareness and trying to help uh, find a cure. That's what it's all about. And uh, for me, I'm trying not to let it uh, stop me doing things. And that's hence the reason I want to continue playing for the Dundas Real McCoys and uh, enjoy myself for as long as I can. When you talk about that it creates disabilities, like what? what for, whether for you or for someone else who has it, like what kind of things would we see that someone would be, how would they be affected by this? Uh, cognitive uh, function. Uh, you know, for me, symptoms that I've felt has been uh, numbness and uh, sensitivity loss in my left side of my body, uh, fatigue, uh, joint uh, pain and um, you know, different different things like that. So some people that are, are diagnosed, they progress quicker than others and are wheelchair-bound. So it's obviously it's a significant, significant uh, disease that creates disabilities that, I guess, make life a little bit more challenging for, for people diagnosed. You mentioned that you were diagnosed in 2011. You had been playing professional hockey by this point. I think you were, were you over in Europe at this point when that came up? I was not. I was still with the Chicago Wolves. I okay. played one one more season, and then and then I decided that uh, while I'm able, I wanted to go play in Europe and, and make the jump to Europe and enjoy as much as I could while uh, while being diagnosed. And my family was on board. My wife and kids. Uh, one of my one of my sons was born in in Germany. So how do you at that point? What was it that made you realize something had gone askew? That something was wrong. Well, as uh, professional hockey players do after games, you, I jumped in the cold tub, uh, and instead of it being cold, I felt like the left side of my body was on fire. And uh, obviously that was alarming, and not knowing anything about MS, it's not something that I thought about, but our trainer sent me for testing. Our neurologist in Chicago uh, did a bunch of MRIs and, and tests, and after my second um, episode of, of symptoms, I was diagnosed with MS. And no one in the family had it? You didn't, like, you, you didn't know anything about this at that point? Not at all. Not at all. So when they start telling you, and you just were re- relating to us some of the things that they probably told you along the way, you could potentially experience some of the things that could happen to you. Is it terrifying, for an athlete especially, when you start hearing about these things that could begin happening to your body? Absolutely, it's terrifying. But uh, for me, I've always been one to look at life in a positive way. And life is not fair. And you got to play with the cards that you're dealt. And for me, I want to enjoy life in, uh, in a positive way. I don't want to sit in my room and, and sulk about it. I want to, again, now, now I'm trying to create awareness. I'm trying to raise awareness. And uh, I'm an MS fighter and I want to battle. It can't, though. I mean, I don't know of anyone else that there probably are. I don't know of any other athletes that still play with this. There can't be too many. Do you know of any others? Uh, that are continuing to play? No, I don't. Uh, um, 
Uh, Josh Harding from the Minnesota Wild. Uh, right, yes, of course. I, that, that's right, yeah. Um, I don't know why I'm drawing a blank right now from the Chicago Blackhawks, just retired last year. Marion Hosa. No. Um, oh, he had some sort of allergy to his equipment, that's right. But yeah, it, I know what you're talking about. Um, but but it, it it does make it difficult though I would imagine if you're having these conditions and, and it do they does is it always there or does it flare up at times? Uh, depending on what type of MS you have. For me, it's I have relapsing remitting, so it comes and goes. For some people, it's progressive and it just continues to get worse. Uh, and the the symptoms that they have, they don't go away. Uh, vision is is another thing that that a lot of people with MS uh, have trouble with. So. Um, there's lesions on your brain that can cause you to lose, you know, sight in your vision. And again, a lot of people control it through medicine. A lot of people control it through their diet. There's many different ways and beliefs on how to, how to battle the disease. And again, to go back and I don't want to keep rehashing the, uh, the negative stuff, but I mean, you were a guy, um, when you talk about vision, you were a guy that was renowned on the ice for your vision to be able to, to pass and to do things on the ice. Um, do you see, other than just getting a little bit older, you're not an old man by any stretch, but I mean, getting older than you were when you were 20 and playing pro, do you see any changes in how, in how it affects you athletically? Uh, obviously, I don't have the, the energy that I had, and I don't know whether that's because of age or because of the disease, but it's uh, I definitely feel, uh, you know, I, I don't have the battle that I did, and I'm getting, I'm older, I've got two kids, I've you know, there's many, many things that are affecting um, my lifestyle that uh, I can either attribute to MS or attribute to just growing older and, and having a family. Yeah, just having kids. I'll tell you, that'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Can sports and being active, can it retard it a bit? Can it hold it back? I was told by my Chicago neurologist to continue to be as active as you know as possible to um, number one, he said it was a great thing that I was an athlete because you notice changes in your body and you know your body very well. And, you know, something as simple as me feeling the, you know, numbness and sensitivity loss in my side, someone else who wasn't as active, you know, it might take them a little bit longer to, to recognize uh, some of the symptoms that they have. Or it might be more debilitating um, if you're not as, as active. So I try to be as as active as possible and try and stay again, like I said, I try and stay as positive. I don't want to, I don't want to focus and have ne- negative energy, but let's be honest, my body needs to heal and my body needs uh, as much positive energy as possible. And I try and live that way. And you, and this league is, is largely a weekend league for more often than not. So it allows that kind of thing. But you, at this point, even if, you were a year or two younger, you probably couldn't still have played pro hockey with that grind. Could you have? Or could obviously, you? Obviously, I'd like to say I could, but, uh, you know, I stopped playing uh, two seasons ago with a back injury, and that's what I was supposed to continue playing. Uh, could I Could I do that grind in that battle now? I, I don't think so. I've been out of the gym. I've been out of uh, mm. that daily grind uh, too long at this point. I'd love to say that I could, and that's the competitive nature in me, but I'll be honest and say that that would be a pretty daunting task. Well, I'll say I saw you play enough times, especially as you came through and played against the Bulldogs and other stuff, that I I was always amazed that you did not get more NHL games than you did because I always thought there's a guy who should be in the NHL. You got one NHL goal, 
and uh, that's better than no NHL goals for sure. Do you, do you remember that one? Absolutely. Um, you know, like like you said, I, I, when I first retired, was was I better and was I? You know, obviously, I feel like I could play at that level. Absolutely, I'm I'm fully confident that with the right opportunity, I could have could have done that and been successful. There's a number of guys that have done that from this area. You know, if you look at a guy like Corey Conacher and uh, you know, there's Corey Locke. There's other guys that have have had very good careers and uh, you know have made it to that level. And I feel like, given the right opportunity, I could have done that as well. And uh, as time's gone gone by, I, I feel you know I'm more proud and happy to say I played 14 years professional hockey. I got paid to play hockey. I've got no uh, no regrets. Um, but again, the only thing that, that kind of eluded me was the opportunity to play for a Stanley Cup and the opportunity to play at the highest level, something that I, I fully believe that I, I could have handled and, and helped out in, uh, with a number of teams within the National Hockey League. I, I 100% agree with that, 100%. Um, tell me about that goal, though. Do you, tell me, Walk us through what happened when you got your goal. Uh, well, Brett Sterling got the puck inside of our zone and uh, fed it to, to Brian Little. We were we were essentially a, a rookie line playing for for Atlanta, and it was a two on two with uh, Brian Little and myself, and he passed it, and I just kind of cut a little bit behind him going into their zone, and closed my eyes, took a snapshot, <laughs> roofed it over Martin Brodeur's shoulder. <laughs> okay, first of all, great that it was on Martin Brodeur. If you're going to score one, you may as well score one on one of the greats. Uh, two, I don't believe for a second you actually closed your eyes. Uh, no, no, I did. <laughs> <laughs> But, it, you know, it's if there's one great thing about having won an NHL goal, I'm sure that it is very viscerally memorable in your mind. You can remember everything about it, I'm guessing. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's, uh, you know, and I again, when I look back at my career, I obviously I feel like I could have had a lot more. And um, But that's something nobody can take that away from me, and I'm very proud of it. And, again, I was fortunate to get that opportunity from Atlanta. Again, I just wish I was given uh, a little bit more of a an opportunity. Darren, do you ever, and we only have a couple of minutes here, but do you ever wonder, too, because, I mean, this is not the first thing that you've had to go through. Uh, your wife, when you were in the middle of your career, your wife had a health issue that Absolutely. was that was frightening. She had, uh, she I can't remember what type of cancer, but she had cancer, correct? She had throat cancer when she was 24, and... Uh, the year we won the Calder Cup with the Chicago Wolves, and it was a pretty special year uh, because that was that was pretty tough on us. Um, obviously, anyone getting diagnosed with cancer, she went under the knife a number of times. She's had about 35 procedures done. Wow. Maybe even more at this point. She has a tracheostomy, um, and, and she's a fighter. She's been cancer-free for, I think it's about 9, 10 years wow, now. Wow, that's fantastic. Um but she lives with a tracheostomy, so uh, the two of us have had it tough. But we're we're blessed and fortunate to have two lovely boys that are four and almost three, and another one due next month. So we're uh, we're a growing family, and we're blessed to be able to have children and and carry on in a, in a, as, as I would like to say, in as healthy as possible. Is part of this uh, the fact that you're still playing and you got this game on Friday with the uh, to raise awareness? Is part of still playing so your kids can be old enough to actually see you and remember Dad playing? Absolutely. I I, I would have loved to have them come in the locker room and 
do all that when I was uh, playing professionally. I know uh, my son Liam was he was a little over two when I played in Germany. He got to come in the locker room a couple times, but I don't think he was going to remember that. So now that he's four, um, I, I think he might have some recollection of, of coming to see and and watch me play. So I, you know, and I want him to. Whether he chooses hockey or not, that's his own decision, and you know I'll, I'll put him into it at start. And if he chooses to play, that's great. But I again, I, for me, that's something special to have them around and watch me play. The game is uh, Friday at eight at Harry Howell Arena. It, it, just before I let you go, is this is this game? I know they're trying to raise some funds, but for you, is this about raising money really, or is this about getting people just to be familiar and like like I've been asking you these questions to become more aware of MS? It's to Obviously, the funds are great. It's more about awareness. For me, the more people that are talking about it, the better for better chance that people are going to help to contribute and research to help find a cure. Darren Hadar of the Dundas Real McCoys. Uh, listen, really appreciate the time today. Enjoy that game on Friday, and uh, hope it's a, a huge success for, on both counts. Thanks for doing this. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Darren Hadar, one of the, not overstating this, it was funny, when I came into the um, station earlier today, and Luke, who was doing, he's producing the show in the afternoon, the newswheel, Luke is a huge hockey fan. And I said, oh, Darren Hadar is coming on, and he goes, that guy was maybe the best guy to never play in the NHL. Well, he did play in the NHL. I think he had 23 games. But the point is made. Darren Hadar was a fantastic hockey player. He was a tremendous hockey player who, as he says, and it happens at times, never got a chance, never really got the opportunity to play in the NHL. And so for that reason, you may not know much about him. There's another guy like that from around here, a guy named Mark Juris. Same idea. Just never got the opportunity, but unbelievable hockey player. They're out there. They, they, those things happen. As it turns out, Darren also has an unbelievable story of having to overcome a bunch of stuff and is still playing. If you're looking for something to do on Friday night to be supportive, to go see a good hockey game, to see him play, whatever it is, uh, Harry Howell Arena, which is the rink at the top of the hill at Highway 6, where it's at Highway 5, right where the Tim Hortons is there on the way to Guelph. If you're driving to Guelph, go up the hill, you get to the lights, the rink is on the far left corner. 8 o'clock, the Dundas Real McCoys play, and there's a, it's a fundraiser and awareness grower for multiple sclerosis. The Scott Radley Show. The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML.